The Volu were women that could today be called something close to a witch, shaman, or prophetess. They were said to be very magical and possessed the ability to do many things, namely, speak the fates of men, which can be and will be quoted various times throughout this episode and the sagas. They were most often held in high esteem, traveling from place to place selling their prophecies, and, coincidentally, they were compensated greatly for their services. Volva, plurally Voler or Volu, go by several names throughout the sagas and literatures, including Saithgona, Saithmathur, and Spakona, among others. Volva, however, is the most prominent term, as it likely derives from the word of Voler, which means staff or wand. There are few named Volva in the sagas, and we will get to some names later, and there are even fewer descriptions or depictions of what these women looked like or what they actually did in terms of magic. However, within the saga of Eric the Red, there is a rather complete description of what one such Cirrus wore and carried. To give you a full picture, I will be quoting a translation by one of my favorite people, Dr. Jackson Crawford, to describe you these things. When she came in the evening with the man who was sent for her, she was dressed in this way. She wore a blue or black cloak with a neck string over herself, and stones were set into it all the way to the hem. On her neck she had glass beads, and on her head she had a black hood made of lamb skin, and that itself was lined with cat skin. And she had a staff in her hand with a knob at the top. The staff was decorated with brass and had stones set in it up to the knob. She had a belt tied around herself with a large sack on it. And in that sack, she kept her talismans, which she needed to make her prophecies. On her feet, she had shaggy shoes of calf skin, which had black shoestrings and big tin knobs on the ends. On her hands, she had catskin gloves. They were white inside and shaggy. I'd like to say it seems to be believed, as an interesting side fact, that Volu are likely seen wearing catskin due to the connotation between Sather, the magic they practice, and the goddess Freya. However, as Jackson Crawford states in the video, which the translation is within, and in some further research, I was not able to dig up any definitive proof of such a fact. Hello all, and welcome back to the Year of Myths here at the main vulva, where I, the main vulva, take you along for my spiritual learning journey. As you now may know, my name is Hilda, and I'd like to thank you for returning to my comfortable corner of the world for more Norris myth. This is the fourth installment of this series, and today I will be reading Grimnismol, or The Words of Odin in Disguise. This tale will be quite similar to last month, where I read with Bjorn Vafthrusnismol, as they both involve a story of Odin. As always, we will be reading the translation by Dr. Jackson Crawford of the Poetic Edda. 
And before continuing forward, I would like to preface with a trigger warning for starvation. If you are sensitive to this subject, please close this episode and join us next time. You're hot, fire, and much too big. Get away from me, flames. My coat is getting burned. Even though I'm holding it up, my clothing is on fire. I've sat between the fires here for eight nights, and no one offered or gave me food, except Agnar alone. Now Agnar will be the sole ruler of the land of the Goths. Hail, Agnar, it's the chief of the gods who's wishing you well. You will never be repaid so well for one drink, no matter how long you live. I see a holy land, which lies near those of the gods and the elves. In that place, Thurthruheim, Thor will live till Ragnarok. Ul has built good halls for himself at Idalir. The gods have Frey, the land of Alfheim, long ago as a gift in his youth. I know a third place where happy gods live beneath a silver roof. It's called Valaskjalf, the place Odin made himself in the old days. The fourth hall is Sokvabek which the cool waves crash upon. There, Odin and Saga drink happily every day from golden cups. A fifth land is Glosheim, where gold-bright wide Volhola stands. That is where Odin chooses from the men killed by weapons every day. Volhola is especially recognized if one comes to see it. The hall is held up by spear shafts. It is roofed by shields, Chainmail is on the benches. Volhall is easily recognized if one comes to see it. A wolf hangs above the western door, and an eagle above him. Thiasi, the mighty giant, once lived in the sixth hall, now known as Thrymheim, and now Skadi, bright bride of the gods, lives in her father's old home. Balder built himself a hall, and it is called Breithablik. That's a place where I know you'll find little grief. Heimdall inhabits the eighth hall, Himinbjorg. That is where he is the master. In that pleasant house, the watchman of the gods happily drinks his good mead. Freya rules in the ninth land, Folkvang. That is where she arranges the seats. She chooses half the dead who die in battle, and Odin takes the other half. The tenth hall is Glitnir with gold walls and a silver roof. The god named Forseti is there on most days, and he settles disputes. The eleventh hall is Njords, which he built and named Notun. That flawless lord of men rules that high-timbered temple. The wide land of Vithar is overgrown with high grass and weeds. The bold son of Odin is preparing himself to avenge his father on horseback. Andhrimnir, the cook, lets the pork from Seithrimnir cook in the cauldron Eldhrimnir. There is no better meat, and there are few who know what the Einhirjar eat. Battle-winning Uthin feeds his tamed wolves, Geri and Freki, but for his part, weapon-loving Uthin lives on wine alone. Thought and memory, my ravens, fly every day, the whole world over. Each day I fear that thought might not return, but I fear more for memory. 
The waves thunder, and the Mythgard serpent makes his home in Fenrir's sea. Dead men will find the sea passage too wide to wade. Valgrind is a holy gate, with holy doors, upon a field. The gate is old, and there are few who know how it is locked. Thor's hall, Bilskinir, has six hundred and forty rooms, if all are counted. I am certain that of all roofed houses, Thor's is the largest. I think Valhalla has six hundred and forty doors, if all are counted. Eight hundred Anhijar will walk through each when the day comes to fight Fenrir. There is a goat named Hethrun who stands on Odin's hall and gnaws the limbs of the tree Lereth. That goat fills Valhol's cups with bright mead from her udders, and that drink will never diminish. There is a stag named Ekthirnir, who stands on Odin's hall and gnaws the limbs of the tree Lereth. Drops fall from his horns into the well of Hergilmir. That is the origin of all the rivers. The rivers Sith and Vith, Sakin and Akin, Svol and Gunthro, Fjorm and Fimbuthul, Rhine and Renandi, Gipul and Gopul, Gomul and Girfumul, Thin and Vin, Thol and Hol. These conceal the gods' riches. Another river is Vina, another Vigsvin, a third is Siothnuma, and also Nith and Not, Non and Hron, Slith and Hrith, Silg and Yilg, Vith and Von, Vond and Strond, Gjol and Lept. These rivers flow near the men who die and go to hell. Thor will wade four rivers each day, the ones called Kormt and Ormt, the two rivers Kerlaug, where he goes to meetings at the tree Yggdrasil. Bifrost bridge of the gods burns in bright flame, and the holy waters seethe. The rivers Glath and Gilir, Glare and Skithbrimir, Silthrentop and Sinir, Gisel and Thalhofnir, Gultop and Letveti, the gods of Ausgard ride their horses every day over these when they go to meet at the tree Yggdrasil. Beneath the tree Yggdrasil are three roots which grow in three directions. Hel is beneath one, Jotunheim beneath another, and Mithgard is beneath the third. A squirrel is named Ratatosk. He runs along the trunk of Yggdrasil. He takes the words of the eagle, tells his insults to Nithog below. There are four deer who stretch out their necks and eat the leaves of Yggdrasil, Dane and Dvalin, Dunair and Durathror. No fool has ever guessed how many serpents lie beneath Yggdrasil. I think that Goin and Moin, Grabak and Grafvoluth, Ofnir and Svafnir, sons of the snake Grafvidnir, will always gnaw that tree's roots. The tree Yggdrasil endures more pain than any men guess. It's eaten from above by the deer, on the side by rot, and from beneath by serpents. They bring my horn, my Valkyries, 
Hirst and Mist, Skegjold and Skogul, Hild and Thurth, Hork and Herfjot, Gol and Gerolul, Randvist, Rathgrith, and Rainleaf. They bring the Einherjar beer. Those slender horses, Arvak and Asvith, lead the sun across the sky. The gods have hidden cooling bellows beneath their legs. There is a shield named Svol. It is set between Mithgard and the sun, in front of the shining sun. I know the mountains and the sea would burn up entirely if that shield ever fell down from there. Skol is the name of the wolf who chases the sun till it sets at evening in the woods. Another wolf named Hati is Hrothvitnir's son. He runs in front of the sun behind the moon. The earth was formed from Ymir's flesh and the sea from his blood, the rocks from his bones, the trees from his hair, and the sky from his skull. The happy gods formed Mithgard for the humans from Ymir's eyelashes. They formed all the grim clouds from his brains. Whoever first puts out the fire will have the help of Ul and all the gods. The realms will be open to all the gods when the kettles are cooled. In ancient days, the dwarves made Skithblathnir, the best of ships for handsome Frey, the strong son of Njord. The tree Yggdrasil is the best of trees. Skithblathnir is the best of ships. Odin, the best god, Sleipnir, the best horse, Bifrost, the best bridge, Brogi, the best poet, Habrok, the best hawk, Garm, the best dog. I have shown my face in the presence of gods, now help is on its way. It will come to all the gods on Aegir's benches when they drink at Aegir's place. I have called myself Grim, I have called myself Wanderer, warrior and helmet wearer, famed one and third one, thunder and wave, hell blind and one eye, truth and swift and true father, battle merry, batter strier, curse eye and fire eye, evil doer, spellcaster, masked and shadowed face, fool and wise man, long hat and long beard, victory father and war ready, all-father, war-father, rope-rider, and hanged god. I have never been known by just one name since I first walked among men. They call me Shadowed Face here at Geroth Place, but Geldings at Esmunds, and they call me Driver when I pulled the sleds, and Mighty at the Assembly. Among the gods I am called Wish-Granter, Speaker, just as high, Shield-Shaker, Wand-bearer, Greybeard. Wise and wisdom-granter were my names at Sok Mimir's hall, when I deceived that old giant and I killed his famous son. I was his killer. You are drunk, Geroth. You have drunk too much. You have lost too much. When you have lost my favor, you've lost the favor of Odin and all the Einherjar. I've told you much, and you'll remember little. Your friends will deceive you. I see the sword of my friend dripping with blood. Now Odin will have a weapon-killed man, 
I know your life has ended. Your guardian spirits are anxious. They see Odin here before you. Approach me if you can. Odin is my name, but before they called me terror, and thunder before that, and waker and killer, and confuser and orator god, heat maker, sleep maker, both gilding and father. I think all these names were used for me alone. King Gilroth sat with his sword on his knees, halfway drawn. When he understood that this was Odin who had come to his hall, he stood up and wanted to take Odin out of the flames. But the sword fell out of his hand and fell hilt first to the ground. The king tripped and fell upon it, so that the sword pierced him through, and he died. Then Odin left, and Agnar was the king of that land for a long time afterward. And that was Grimness Mole. Having a discussion with myself still feels a bit awkward, and I'm not certain that I have a whole lot to say that won't sound like a high school essay. Um, though, I do hope you all enjoyed the squawking of crows as I was reading. I thought that was quite funny, as a lot of symbology when it comes to Norse paganism, crows and ravens are used interchangeably with one another in symbology terms. I will say that this myth brought to my attention a lot of names and places that I have not previously heard of, and I think that's always pretty fascinating, even when they're one-off references to things like all of those rivers. There were at least, you know, 16, 17 different river names there were different animals that I had heard of, but a whole slew that I had not. And it's, like I say, always nice to, for me personally, to learn these different terms and these different names. And speaking of learning new things and some extra information, I did not read this prior to reading Grunemnismol, but there is a portion at the beginning concerning the sons of King Hrauthong, which is Agnar and his brother Geroth. There are a few paragraphs worth of information that somewhat condenses the history or backstory, for those of you that enjoy storytelling, of these two brothers prior to this myth happening. And I would like to read it now, even though it may seem a little bit displaced. King Haralthung had two sons. One was named Agnar and the other Geroth. Agnar was ten years old and Geroth was eight. The two of them rowed out in a boat with their fishing tackle and hoped to catch some small fish. But the wind drove them far out into the sea. In the dark night they wrecked and went up onto the land where they met a poor farmer and they stayed there with him over the winter. The farmer's old wife fostered Agnar, and the farmer fostered Geroth and tutored him. Early in the spring, the man gave them a boat, and when he and his wife followed them down to the shore, the man spoke to Geroth in secrecy. The boys departed, and the wind was favorable. They came to their father's harbor, and then Geroth, who stood foremost in the boat, sprang up on land and shoved the boat back out to sea and said, Go wherever the trolls take you. 
the boat drifted far out to sea with Agnar, but Geroth went inland to his father's hall. He was received well, but he learned that his father had died, so Geroth was taken as king, and he became a famous man. Odin and Frigg sat in, in Hrithskjalf and looked out over all the worlds. Odin said, Look how your foster son Agnar sits, and father's children on a troll woman in a cave, while my foster son, Geroth, is king and rules the land. Frigg said, But Geroth is so stingy with food that he starves his guests if he thinks there are too many. Odin said that this was a tremendous lie, and so he and Frigg made a wager about it. Then Frigg sent her servant Fula to Geroth, and had Fula warn him that a sorcerer had come to the land, but that this sorcerer could be recognized by the fact that even the fiercest dog would not attack him. It was, in fact, an idle rumor that Geroth was miserly with his food. All the same, he ordered any man who would not be attacked by any dog to be apprehended. Ozen came wearing a blue cape and called himself Shadowed Face, but said nothing more of himself even when asked. So the king had him tortured in an effort to extract more information from him, and had him placed between two burning fires where he sat for eight nights. King Geroth had a ten-year-old son named Agnar, after the king's brother. Agnar went to this shadowed face and gave him a full horn to drink and said he thought his father was behaving poorly to torture a man without cause. Shadowed face drank and by then the fire had grown so large that he begun to burn his cloak. And there you have it. On reflection it would have made more sense to read it at the beginning of the myth. But I hope you still enjoyed this little backstory nonetheless as much as I did. And that is going to wrap up this myth this time, but before we leave, I'm going to present you with a new Facts and Finds segment, and then I will see you next month with my next guest. <laughs>
under a mound of earth until it was discovered in 1880. Warming notes that while the longship and many artifacts now rest in a museum in Norway, some of the grave goods had not been subjected to any substantial examination since their initial discovery. This can often be the case with museum pieces, long displayed behind glass with a small placard of text describing the artifact in certain terms, and it can be challenging to argue with the gravitas of the presentation. More often, artifacts or fossils are rediscovered in museum or university basements, a last-ditch effort to identify items in a box decades after the initial discovery often comes with discovery based on decades of new knowledge. Since the Gokstad ship discovery was more than 140 years ago, a new look was overdue. Having researched Viking Age shield manufacturing in Denmark, Warming specifically focused on the 64 round shields that the original assessment considered constructed for a burial rite ceremony. Warming investigated the fragmented wooden shield boards contained in 50 boxes at the Viking Ship Museum in Oslo. Four shields had undergone a crude reconstruction about a hundred years ago, reinforced with modern steel frames and constructed from original boards. Though, according to Warming, not boards belonging to a single shield, but rather an aesthetic museum reconstruction. The original report by Norwegian archaeologist Nikolai Nikolaisen in 1882 states that 32 shields were found hung on each side of the ship. They were painted either yellow or black and positioned in alternating colors so that the rim of each shield touched the boss, the round metal connecting piece in the center of the shields of the next, giving the rows of shields an appearance of yellow and black half moons. The shields were not intact and only minor pieces of the shield boards were found in their original position. According to the current study, the original report left out critical details. Shield bosses and boards, well mentioned by Nicolaisen, were not counted in the report, and the pigments described are no longer visible or even detectable on the artifacts. The shields were found to have small holes around the circumference, which the original report assumed were used for fastening a metallic rim that had corroded away before discovery. The crows are back. Warming updates this interpretation with a much richer body of literature available on round shields than at the time of the excavation. The hypothesized missing metallic rims have not been discovered in other Viking Age shields, but more likely were attached points for thin, parchment-like rawhide covers as discovered on shield finds in Denmark, Sweden, and Latvia. Several boards with patches of unidentified organic material may offer some clarity in future investigations. The presence of animal skins on shields would indicate functional constructions for use in combat. Warming also hints that this parchment could have been painted, which might explain why the pigments have not been detected on the board fragments, as a thin organic covering might not have survived. An iron shield handle covered with a very thin decorative copper alloy sheet bent around the iron core, masking rivets hidden beneath is among the artifacts. Additionally, some of the shield fragments 
also have small holes on either side of the cracks in the boards, suggesting that they may have undergone repair, both features inconsistent with ceremonial construction. All of the shields were ultimately used in a ceremonial burial rite for the important figure entombed within the ship, but the construction and previous uses of the shields, according to Warming, are not as straightforward as originally reported. Archaeology, in general, has a good track record for rewriting history and upending previous preconceptions of the past. As Warming demonstrates in his analysis, this can also be applied to past archaeological efforts. In essence, archaeological reports can have expiration dates. As new knowledge is acquired and the analysis techniques become available, their untold discoveries awaiting more insightful inquiry of artifacts sitting patiently beside incorrect or incomplete placards in museums around the world. More information on this subject and Warming's research can be read in the published journal Arms and Armor. Now that was episode four of the Year of Myths. Hopefully you are continuing to enjoy this series so far. Thank you very much for returning every time to listen again. And I hope that you will join me next time and my new guest, another new one, for, for Skirnis, or The Journey of Skirnir, on behalf of Froy. Now stay tuned, if you'd like, for a podcast trailer from Two Rock Radio. And if that's it... From you and from me, from this wonderful day, I bid you all farewell. Welcome to Two Rock Radio. I'm Jeff, coming to you from Two Rock Ridge Farm in Washington, Maine. On this channel, we're going to talk about Maine agriculture, farming, and homesteading. From our own 10 years of experience, to interviews with folks involved in the culture, business, and lifestyle, we're going to delve into the farming and homesteading of the state of Maine. For people thinking to start to farm to the old hands, this is the channel for you. Come along with us as we dig deep into what makes Maine unique to this type of farming. Cheers and have a great day. The Volu were women that could today be called something close to a witch, shaman, or prophetess. They were said to be very magical and possessed the ability to do many things, namely, speak the fates of men, which can be and will be quoted various times throughout this episode and the sagas. They were most often held in high esteem, traveling from place to place selling their prophecies, and, coincidentally, they were compensated greatly for their services. Volva, plurally Volur or Volu, go by several names throughout the sagas and literatures, including Saithkona, Saithmathur, and Spakona, among others. Volva, however, is the most prominent term, as it likely derives from the word of Volar, which means staff or wand. There are few named Volva in the sagas, and we will get to some names later, and there are even fewer descriptions or depictions of what these women looked like or what they actually did in terms of magic. 
However, within the saga of Eric the Red, there is a rather complete description of what one such Cirrus wore and carried. To give you a full picture, I will be quoting a translation by one of my favorite people, Dr. Jackson Crawford, to describe you these things. When she came in the evening with the man who was sent for her, she was dressed in this way. She wore a blue or black cloak with a neck string over herself, and stones were set into it all the way to the hem. On her neck she had glass beads, and on her head she had a black hood made of lamb skin, and that itself was lined with cat skin. And she had a staff in her hand with a knob at the top. The staff was decorated with brass and had stones set in it up to the knob. She had a belt tied around herself with a large sack on it. And in that sack she kept her talismans, which she needed to make her prophecies. On her feet she had shaggy shoes of calfskin, which had black shoestrings and big tin knobs on the ends. On her hands she had catskin gloves. They were white inside and shaggy. I'd like to say it seems to be believed, as an interesting side fact, that Volu are likely seen wearing catskin due to the connotation between Sather, the magic they practice, and the goddess Freya. However, as Jackson Crawford states in the video, which the translation is within, and in some further research, I was not able to dig up any definitive proof of such a fact. <laughs> 